kittens. We're back with another very special stay at home self quarantine episode of the Brando cast. You know, I've had so many fucking amazingly talented people on this particular show, Graham. We've had Black Francis from the Pixies, we've had Ray Seahorn, Paget Brewster, Dana Gould, Keith Morris from the Circle Jerks, but there's nobody in the state of California who is more talented than my guest today. I knew her as Stephanie on the sitcom I wrote on, the TBS sitcom My Boys, but you might know her as the horrifically awesome Kalei Stewart. Hi, Brando! What up there, buddy? (laughs) I am so excited to have you on today. Uh, When I reached out to you to do this, too, I also want to say, you gave me a subject that I'm so fucking excited about. So let's just do a quick catch up because I haven't seen you in a while. What the fuck is going on in your life? Dude, fucking Biden is president elect. I know. Okay? My God. So that is going on in my life and everybody's life. Um, everything has been dope. I get so excited when I speak to anybody from my boys. You know, I speak to Bunin, Kaler read all the rest but it's so cool to like be able to sit with you because so much has been going on like work-wise i was on cherish the day ava duvernay's show on own which was dope um since my boys i did the soul man i did oh my god all american like a bunch of stuff but i also became a writer and i am now a wga member i wrote my first pilot called bbf black best friend which i sold to fox that cedric the entertainer produces and one of our buddies from my boys co-wrote that um sebastian jones i did not fucking know that are you kidding wow yes we did it together he's amazing he taught me so much it didn't get picked up to pilot but you know we we can still take that thing out and and now i have um another movie that i don't know if I can announce where it is, but I sold a, a film about my fertility journey called 29 Eggs that is currently in TV development, suckers. <laughs> Listen, people, this person, we loved everyone at My Boys, but let me just say this about the writing staff. We fucking loved Clay Stewart because all she does is bring the thunder. There is no one who does more <laughs> with less, and there is no one who gets laughs from just the simplest of lines because she always showed up prepared, focused, made big choices. So that is so incredible that you're writing now. Of course. Yeah, it's so, dope. so directing has got to be not far behind that. Not far behind. I mean, I directed a play in Los Angeles a couple of years ago. I directed a bunch of guys. I was the only girl. Mm-hmm. So very reminiscent of my boys. Um, but I really didn't know that writing was like going to, take this form in my life. First of all, I learned from all of you guys at the staff of my boys. I mean, we had the best writing staff, so much fun. Everybody was collaborative. Nobody had an ego there, you know? So I, I got a lot of my, you know, just my balls to even try something by being around people that were always encouraging like you. And, um, but then it just became like a thing. Like I went through a really bad freaking breakup. I was mm-hmm. crying and shit. And so I was getting sick of myself and I went to, (laughs) I went to a damn diner and I thought I was going to write some poem 
about how sad I was being this lonely black girl living in LA that wasn't going to find a man fucking ever. And it wound up being a comedy BBF. And then, you know, Sebastian helped me out. And then I was like, oh, here's this thing that I can do now. So I'm doing it now. You're 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 just a force. Let me just say to people listening at home, Sebastian Jones, an amazing writer, wrote on Friends. Uh, God, so many fucking shows. Uh, Spin City. Yeah. He's a, a Jedi Master writer. Let me also say this to you. One of our fearless leaders, I will not say her name, but uh, one of our fearless leaders uh, had a meeting recently at TBS. Ooh. And the TBS executives admitted to her that they canceled My Boy's Way too fucking early. Hello. We should be on season 16 right now. I mean, we had wow. the best following. And we had the best audience. Yes. Such a great show. It was It was really before its time, you know, in the sense yeah. that um, it, it was very situational, but full of real friendships. What I appreciated so much about the show is that it tapped into things that, uh, that shows at the time weren't really interested in doing like for instance i remember there was an episode where stephanie who was the only african-american woman on the show was dating a guy and he um he went for jordana's character pj instead of me and um there were some lines and some stuff that i really didn't feel told the truth of their friendship and told the truth from stephanie's point of view and i went straight to betsy thomas and um, who was our showrunner, creator of the show, fucking amazing woman that is actually the reason I froze my eggs. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> he made me do it. Um, but I went to her and I was like, you know what? As a black woman, I'm not really feeling this. And here's why. And she was like, say no more. I'm going back to my desk and we're going to rewrite this. And I was like, can it just be a real relationship and a real conversation where a black friend and a white friend are like, well, have you ever dated a black guy? And well, why not? Like, is that not a thing for you? And Betsy wrote it and we played it. And I was like, I was so, you know, as a young actor at the time, I was grateful that number one, I was heard. Um, and, and that number two, it wasn't so taboo anymore to not speak up. You know, when you have Betsy Thomas and you have her ear and she's like, dude, I got your back. Uh, it really teaches you. Not everybody's like that in, that in this business. Not everybody's like that. Some people tell you to shut up and say the line. But Betsy Thomas is like, what do you need? How, how do we make this better and make this more real? You're the black woman here. Tell me what it is. And um, yeah, so thumbs up for that. First of all, she loves you. And we loved you again because you were just you could give you anything, any line. You would just have your own unique. You would always put your own unique spin on it. You would always come up with something subtle and nuanced and something that the writers didn't even think about when you, um, hey, you know, when you executed those words. And that's a very big deal. And what people don't know, and I think a lot of actors might not know this, but like when people sit in writers' rooms, they talk, they have to talk about who can handle this joke or who can handle this attitude or who can pull this off. And when you show up consistently, actors, and you do your homework and you bring the thunder, you're going to get more of those lines. And that's what happens with Clay Stewart because in the beginning of the show, I mean, I think Betsy would admit in the pilot, the best friend character was just a, a simple best friend character. But when you showed up for the pilot table read and then in the pilot, you just brought your own, you just sprinkled your own sauce on the character well, and it know, became something completely different. 
That's really amazing. I'm glad that you brought it up because it brings me like a really cool memory because I actually tested for the show right before that table read, like five minutes before, literally, with Jordana. And I went to the parking lot and they said, don't leave, you got the job. So I go back into the table read and there's all of Sony Studios and the network TBS, all of the writers, all of these amazing people. And you guys had met the cast before and you guys had kind of like played some poker. This was my first time in. And, you know, I think Stephanie came in like page 12 and it says stephanie walks into the bar and i say hey mike hey kenny and because of what you just said about the best friend character which is like a trope having the black best friend right like they they you know normally cast a woman of color a person of color to play the best friend to a caucasian lead which is why i wrote the show bbf because it's reversing that trope like no more of that um but that was then, this is now. But back then, I remember going to the table read and my first line was, hey, Mike, hey, Kenny. And as a black actor, I knew that if I did not create a relationship with someone other than PJ, I was going to be stuck curling her hair every single episode. I needed to have a connection with one of those guys. So out of those four words, I said, hey, Mike, all sweet and jovial, and then, hey, Kenny, with an attitude to Michael Bunin, who plays Kenny, that I never knew, never met before. But what was amazing about it is he kind of grunted and rolled his eyes. But all of you, all of the writers threw their hands up in the air, looked at each other and started like taking notes like, yes, this is going to be a relationship. They don't like each other. We got to figure out why. And I was so grateful that you guys got me because in that moment you went with where I was going. All I knew is that the joke of having an attitude only landed on the second name. And I knew I needed to have a relationship with one of the guys so that Stephanie had a world to go into. And because you guys caught it, grabbed it, and we ran that the entire show. It was a series arc <laughs> the relationship between listen to this actress because Calais Stewart just took you to acting school. Okay. <laughs> because of this strong choice, this was a, this was not a season arc. This was a series arc, the relationship between Kenny and Stephanie. And it was so meta on so many levels. One, because first of all, it was fucking hilarious in the moment. And the attitude was perfect Two, a lot of us, we're friends with the actor Michael Bunin before the show. So we were also reacting to someone putting their thumb on Bunin for a second because that guy can be super cocky when he wants to be. <laughs> so that was hysterical. And the whole, whole idea of what could happen with Kenny and Stephanie paid off in the end when they were together. And I will say this. I, we used to joke about it, but I was never, I was never joking. Uh, I was quite serious about the spinoff uh, being called um, Mike and Rachel and Stephanie and Kenny. <laughs> we would have killed and it. You would have killed it. And it would have been, it would have picked up where the, my boys show ended off and it would have followed the two couples that came out of the show. It would have been you and Michael Bunin and Jamie Kaler and the great Rachel Harris, yes. who of course went on to be on Lucifer. Really? But those were two super fun couples and friends that could have completely carried their own show. So yada, yada, blah, blah, blah. You're amazing. So let's have some fun today. When I reached out to Calais Stewart to ask her what she wanted to talk about, oh my God, 
<laughs> she came up with an artist that I haven't covered on this show before. Ladies and gentlemen, let me just say, born on May 16, 1966, Janet Demita Joe Jackson is an American singer, songwriter, actor, and dancer. A prominent figure in popular culture, Jackson is noted for her sonically innovative, socially conscious, and sexually provocative records, and for her elaborate stage shows. The 10th and youngest child of the legendary Jackson family, Jackson began her career with the variety TV show, The Jacksons in 1976. She went on to appear in other shows throughout the 70s and early 80s, including Good Times, Different Strokes, and Fame, which she hated. One of the biggest pop stars of all time, Janet Jackson was elected into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2019. And Clay, I have spent the morning listening to Janet Jackson, and I have to admit that I cried because it took me back to a really fun period of time in my life, uh, the late 80s, where Janet was just, few were bigger than Janet. Only her brother was bigger than her at, the period, at that period of time. But tell me about your love of Janet Jackson. Oh, my gosh. You know, I, 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 well, I grew up in Pennsylvania, in Norristown, Pennsylvania, and, like, nothing was cool. Like nobody was super dope. Nobody was really cool. I remember that my, the first band that I ever really listened to was the police who I love and still love staying in the police. It was the first concert I ever went to. My brother snuck me out of the house and took me to a police concert. So thank you. In Philly. Was that in Philly? It was in Philly. I was totally not allowed to go. My parents were on vacation. He got me in the car. He was like, this is a band. You need to understand what a band is. And we went to see um, the police walking in your footsteps. Like, <laughs> Sting took me out. But then I got introduced to Janet. Miss Jackson, if you're nasty. And so all of a sudden, I see this. First of all, she just like came out of the bag like fierce because I had watched her like playing Penny on Good Times, you know, and things like like I had seen her. I knew well, her brothers are famous, but not her. So when she came out in the music scene with such a sexy ass banger, like all the time, I just kind of felt like she's the little sister that I want to be. You know what I mean? And so hearing her and just watching her power, uh, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis and just how she like took over, she took over that Jackson name. And I think that's why I, I totally dug her. I still do. Well, let's dig into that a little bit because one of the most important things about Janet Jackson is when she decided to basically break off from her family. So let me just say this. After signing a recording contract with AM Records in 1982, Jackson became a pop icon following the release of her third studio album. Control was released on February 4th, 1986 by AM Records, and it was produced, as Kalei said, by Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Jackson's collaboration with these two former members of the time resulted in an unconventional sound. And that sound was a fusion of rhythm and blues, rap vocals, funk, disco, and synthesized percussion that established Jackson as a superstar. 
Containing autobiographical themes, a majority of Control's lyrics came as the result of a series of big changes in Jackson's life. A recent annulment of her marriage to singer James DeBarge, severing her business affairs from her controlling father and manager Joseph Jackson, and also the rest of the Jackson family, and her decision to use Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Control became Jackson's first album to pop the Billboard charts and five of its commercial singles, What Have You Done For Me Lately, Nasty, Control, When I Think Of You, and Pleasure Principle smashed up the charts. Now, here is what I, I want to get your opinion about this, because this is so fucking incredible. No. The album starts with the song Control, and the opening lyrics, the first lyrics that you hear in that song are, this is a story about control, my control of what I say, control of what I do, and this time I'm going to do it my way. I hope you enjoy this as much as I do. Are we ready? And with that, Janet is saying, I am my own motherfucker. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's why growing up as a young woman, like for me, Janet Jackson in music was the embodiment of woman empowerment. You know what I mean? And when I'm the only girl in my family, like I said, I have an older brother. I'm a little bit of a tomboy, so I would be out with the dudes all the time. So this was this thing where, because she wasn't just like smart about it. She was also sexy at the same time. And it's very, very hard. I mean, her brothers were the Jackson Five. I mean, this is like, it is impossible for anybody to pay attention to you when Michael Jackson and the Jackson Five are your brothers, when Diana Ross is taking your little brother to the Grammys. Like, it's impossible for anybody to give a shit. You know what I mean? And to just to for her to come out and I remember that divorce. I remember her um, getting rid of Joe Jackson because nobody was really talking about all of that drama that, you know, the way that she was. And But she found a way to carve it out, but to do it so damn well, because the fact remains the song still to this day is a banger. It's classic to this day. Anybody that grew up in that time, and even if you never heard it before, you never grew up in that time, I can give that to my 11-year-old niece, and she will get that song today. So I love it. The, I remember, now you can imagine what 1986 Brendan was like. <laughs> <laughs> Out of control, punk rock, heavy metal. But silently, I always fucking loved Janet Jackson. And the thing that I loved about this record was the statement of, I am leaving the clan. Yep. And I am throwing down with not only Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, but the system that they came from, which is the Prince system. Because for people who don't know, you should know that Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis are two of the biggest producers in the history of, ever. of the planet of ever. But their sound, the Minneapolis sound, that that mix of funk and and the heavy synthesizer and the and the electronic drums and the the beats that they used, I mean, it was she didn't use Quincy Jones to make her big record. No, <laughs> and, no. and her father had actually had control over her first two records, which I didn't talk about. So, basically, saying I'm in the Prince camp now, I'm in the Jimmy Jam Terry Lewis camp now. It's a huge deal. Mm -hmm. But also saying, bye-bye, Dad. 
I mean, the, the, the courage that it must have taken her to, to make that, um, to make that move is to me beyond admirable. And I respected her for that because it was so clearly obvious Mm-hmm. Who's no one is bigger on the planet than Michael Jackson in the year of our Lord, 1986, even though bad was not as fucking crazy as thriller, but for her to come along also in that atmosphere and to have this statement album, I mean, she's the fucking greatest. So that was my weird little rant. I want to hear from you about Norristown. Uh, I want to hear about you and Norristown around this period of time. Just give me a little, uh, give me a little picture of what you were like. You just said you were a tomboy, but Give me some more flavor. Yeah, it's a little bit of a tomboy. And it kind of goes back a little bit to my boys as to, you know, I always used to think about how getting cast as a black best friend, like, where does that come from? But, you know, I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood, right? So I was like, I was, you know, I had a little bit of an issue because I was too white for the black kids, but I was too black for the white kids. So I was a little bit, (laughs) uh, I was a little bit in between trying to find myself. Like I said, I went to a Prince, I'm I'm sorry, to a police concert and then, you know, fell in love with Janet Jackson. It was like two different worlds for me, but, uh, Narstown, East Narton, where I grew up, um, you know, I, I still, actually I'm very fond of it. And I, I, I love it there. We, um, we're about 45 minutes away from Philadelphia. Um, you know, it was, I guess because we're living in a time now where things are like really at the surface, I have to say, um, that what, what I didn't know then was how much kind of microaggression, like racism was, was in my neighborhood. You know, I dated the boy across the street and I can't give his whole name, but let's just say his first was Danny. So you want, (laughs) (laughs) but Danny's parents, um, did not want him dating a black girl, you know, but cut to 20 years later when, Danny's ex-girlfriend is on a show called My Boys. They can knock on the door of my parents' house and be like, oh, my God, we see her on TV. Like, that's the neighborhood um, that I grew up in. And I think I, 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 I have so many fond memories and friends still to this day that are my friends from that, from that place. But it was also a place that I really wanted to escape. I'm going to just be honest. You know, I'm an artist. It's, it's not that type of world there. It's more like you marry the boy from high school and you move five miles from where you grew up and you kind of live in this little 15 mile radius. And that's your world. I'm not judging it. I'm not saying it's wrong, but I am saying that for me personally, it didn't work. And I moved to New York and I actually became an agent, an acting and modeling agent. Yep. After I went to school for acting, I got my BFA, my Bachelor of Fine Arts. I became an agent. So I knew how to make money and how to negotiate money. And then after that, I moved to L.A. and I met you guys and the rest is history. Uh, Okay. Uh, That I didn't. Well, how come I didn't know? Maybe you told me that a million years ago. I mean, there have been many edibles consumed since then, but um, (laughs) and some dead brain cells. But uh, uh, tell me about your run as an agent. What was that like? I was a bad waitress, dude. I sucked at it. I did not like pouring anybody their own fucking wine. Do it yourself. I just, I wasn't that girl. And so I wanted to find a way to understand the business from the other side of it. And I was modeling at the time. So I was the Skittles girl. 
So in New York City, like I, you know, I was a commercial print model. I had like a Skittles campaign where I'm on the bus and the New York City buses and I go to hand in my voucher. So when you model, you get a voucher at the gig and you hand it in to your agent after and then they pay you, you know, when the money comes in. So I go to hand in my voucher and my booker at the time was arguing with the owner of the agency. They were having like a full on out loud blast of an argument and she quit. And she quit and she grabbed her stuff and she ran out the door. And there I am after doing the Skittles thing with my voucher in my hand. And I was like, hey, who do I hand this to? And by the way, you clearly need another booker. So I'll take the job because I didn't want to be a waitress anymore waiting for the next gig. And they were like, well, you can fill in for the week, you know, call models and actors for go sees. And I started doing it and I did it well. And then I became the head of the adult division at FFT agency. They are still in business in New York. And I went to my boss, Jane Blum, and I was like, look, I'm an actor. Like, I'm not even about this agency life, but if you'll pay me under the table, I'm not going to get my health insurance and stuff, but let me go audition and let me do plays on the side. As long as I cover my ass here, that's really all I want. And she was like, you got it. And so I would book and then I would go to an audition and then I would get a job at Huntington Theater in Boston. I would get a job at Yale Rep and I would go do the play and then I would call my friends to fill in for me. And to this day, Jane Blum, still a friend, still watched my boys, still calls whenever I get a, whenever I get a gig. Um, and that's what I did. Like I just, I learned the business from being in the business. How do you like 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 I said at the top of the show, Calais <laughs> Stewart is a force. Rhythm Nation 1814 is Janet Jackson's fourth studio album, and it was released on September 19th, 1989. Although label executives wanted material similar to control, Jackson insisted on creating a concept album addressing social issues. Collaborating again with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, Jackson grew inspiration from various tragedies reported through the news media and explored themes such as racism, poverty, substance abuse, and romance. Rhythm Nation 1814 became Jackson's second consecutive album to top the Billboard charts, and it went platinum six fucking times. It became the best-selling album of 1990 in the U.S., and it sold an estimated 12 million copies worldwide. Notable hits and videos include Miss You Much, Rhythm Nation, and Escapade. Uh, let me just say this, too. When Janet shouts out Minneapolis in Escapade, that's another huge bye-bye to the clan, to the Jackson clan. So amazing. And again, as I, I think I, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but when I was listening to, ja to Janet... Um, before you and I sat down together today, I heard Escapade and I got a little teary. I got a little teary. I teared up. I think I needed a good cry because I'm Irish Catholic. I'm Irish Catholic. I'm assuming that Danny from Norristown had the last name of O'Connor or O'Toole or O something. Let me just say that. But knowing Norristown a little bit. Yeah. But um, I, I th that song took me right back. The late 80s were a really super fun time for me. Escapade was everywhere you couldn't walk into a store without hearing janet jackson um so uh, thank you for the gift i needed a good little cry you uh, need a little thing at, yeah at, well after six months of this madness 
and also the stress of the last uh, couple weeks with the election. So there you go. Escapade. Do you have any thoughts about Rhythm Nation? Oh my, well, first, like, again, what I love about Janet so much is that it's, it transcends time. Like Rhythm Nation was the thing that like made me feel like I was part of a collective world and I actually mattered. Like there was something like, you know, that we are a part of a Rhythm Nation. There was something about people of the world today. Are you looking for a better way of life? Sing. Like there was something like, so like I was a cheerleader in high school. So there was something, it was a rally cry, right? Like it was, it was that type of feeling. And I hadn't really felt that in music before, like how my parents did, you know, in the fifties and sixties and Marvin Gaye and, and like that, that different, you know, what's going on like that, that, that felt like you were part of a community of change. Rhythm nation was that for me. Um, because even just that lyrics, people of the world today, are you looking for a better way of life? And we could, translate that all the way from back then to uh, the election we just went through. Like, yeah, we are looking for a better way of life, you know? And so she made me feel like I was a part of a collective world and I mattered. And then I could like, and Janet had the best videos. Like, let's be clear people. (laughs) We love Beyonce. Okay. B is like, off the freaking charts, fucking amazing. And I know she would agree. The reality is Janet, because, you know, we used to call her Janet. It That Jackson fell off. Like, you could just say Janet, and everybody knew what time it was. So she really separated herself. But Janet brought so much fire and heat to her videos. Those were the first videos that you learned the choreography for that you got with your crew in the backyard and every- no, this is it. It's five, six, seven, eight. Like you, you made it. You had to be on that eight count for real. Like Janet wouldn't have it any other way. That's when we wore those black hats with like the silver metal on it. Like Janet made you like want to be on that stage with her, want to be in that video with her. She was just the dopest. And when she does the solo routine in the loft for pleasure principle, <laughs> were you a dancer did you have dancing in your repertoire i i went to ballet and i i didn't stay in it because i have too much of an attitude i'm not patient enough to be like on my toes doing a plie and i was kicking and doing an arabesque fuck that i was never i wasn't girly enough to stick with it and, and the pink tights and the black leotards, they tried it. My parents tried it. And I was like, no, I, I <laughs> this is a, but then you put on like Janet Jackson and I feel like all militant and shit. And I was, I was, I was here for it, but yeah, I couldn't dance dance, but you know, I, I was in the backyard with my homegirls and we were doing, we were trying to figure out the choreography. Like we were going to do that at the talent show. Like it was done at the talent show. What do you remember with, with your girls? Do you remember what song grabbed you guys the most that you actually really tried to nail? Well, okay. I personally tried to nail pleasure principle over the chair and I could have been in the hospital like 50 times if I kept that shit up. So I knew better. I was like, this is not your ministry. Stop Kelly. 
But we tried to nail Rhythm Nation because it was so cool. Because like we all just had black baseball caps and black, you know what I mean? We could we could do that, but we never got it quite right. But then when I went to college, one of my friends who actually is a choreographer, her name is Rhapsody James, and she choreographed for Beyonce. She's like she's out there. She does her thing. She taught me the um the rest of the stuff that I couldn't get. You see how my shoulders are moving right now. <laughs> yeah. People in the, in the theater of your mind, she just executed uh, a perfect rhythm nation shoulder shrug. <laughs> the best. Oh my God. That is so incredible. All right. Let, let me, I, the thing that I've been, since you talked about being an agent, I have been wondering how, did, how did you get from New York to Los Angeles? Oh, um, well, to be honest. So I'm an agent at this modeling agency. We also book, actors, but I was also acting, like I said. So I had an acting agent so that I could go out in between. And my acting agent, um, I wanted to go to LA. I had a thought about it. Maybe it's time to go. And I remember she told me I was too fat. (gasps) Uh Uh-huh. One of those that I was too fat to go to LA and it wouldn't work. So I, that pissed me off. Like everybody needs a fuel um, for their next journey, whatever it is. And so I took that on as a challenge and it wasn't necessarily to lose weight. It was to prove her wrong. And what actually wound up happening is I auditioned for, um, a play for, for Broadway, for Raisin in the Sun, written by Lorraine Hansberry and Sean Puffy Combs was going to be playing the lead and, uh, Felicia Rashad, was also cast and I auditioned for Benita, which happened to be the same monologue that I used to get into SUNY Purchase, the college that I went to and got my BFA in. So I was like, oh, I'm going to kill this. And I did. And they called and I was on hold forever. And all of these callbacks with Kenny Leone, fabulous Broadway director. And then they said, we would like for you to be the understudy to Sanaa Lathan wonderful, beautiful actress, Sanaa Lathan. And my mom said to me, understudy, (laughs) you're not an understudy. And I said, well, mom, you know, this, that, and the third, this is great. It's Broadway. And my mom, mama stew, y'all, that's what we call her, wound up calling the Dean of SUNY Purchase. Now I'm out of school for years. I'm an agent. She calls the Dean of SUNY Purchase and says, I need you to talk to her. His name is Israel Hicks. He's now in heaven. I need you to talk to her because she has this crazy idea that she should be somebody's understudy instead of following her plan A. And he called me and he said, you've been out of school how long? Seven years? And he said, you know, and he's, he's a, he knows Sanaa, he knows the whole world of, of the show and how great it, of an opportunity it was. But he said, when are you going to bet on you? You know, because you're going to be backstage flipping through a magazine and, or you could go out to LA and take this risk. So I told them no. And it was the hardest call to make. They called me back and offered it again. They actually told me I was crazy. And I was like, I know, but I'm still saying no. And I went to Los Angeles. So here's the getcha gotcha of that. From the time that I would have been in rehearsals and the time that that show rehearsed, previewed, and opened. I came out to LA and booked, guess who, where I played Bernie Mac's daughter. 
um, in the 2005 hit comedy with, with Bernie Mac and Ashton Kutcher and booked the pilot of a show called My Boys on TBS. So I still would have been backstage flipping that magazine and I would never have met you if I had taken that job. Wow. <laughs> that is uh, that is an amazing sort of path not chosen yeah. that takes you to another path that gets you to a really fun place because I would hope that those four years at my or four or five years at my boys were professionally uh, thrilling for you. Changed my life. Great. It was, it, it was, it, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. I will never, ever, ever be able to go through this life, not honoring what my boys did for me as an actor, as a writer, as a person. And, and, what people don't really know is the cast and crew of my boys are family still to this day. Yeah. I get very, very teary eyed. I'm very, very protective of my friends and family of my boys because I, I learned to, I learned to trust myself there. You know, we told that story earlier of me throwing out that line and I'm really grateful that you gave me all of that credit, but it wasn't, I took the risk, but you guys embraced it. And so the thing that I was afraid of being trapped in a black best friend role, because you guys embrace my humanity, who I am and what I brought to the table, I never felt the trappings of that. Instead, I was given, you know, my, I got my wings from my mom and from my training and I, I had to flap them on my own. But when you do that and somebody gives you some extra wind, and, and you go higher and higher, my boys was the extra wind. And the things that I was choosing to do were working and you guys were affirming that and writing for me and writing my voice. And that's how I found it. You know, when you go to your showrunner and say, hey, what do you think? Or, hey, I don't know if this works. And she says, say no more, I got you. Tell me what you think. Um, that is really affirming. And every artist needs that to continue to take risks. Yeah. And you also know what it's like to be in a situation where you're not allowed to take risks professionally, Ooh. or you know that your, your, your voice on the set is actually not welcomed. No. We, I will tell you this one time, uh, there was uh, one of the Rob Greenberg, who's a great uh, writer and director who did a bunch of my boys. Yeah, He came to the writer's room one day to just sit with us because he's an incredible writer himself. And, you know, we're all friends in the room. There's no competition. You know, everyone's hoping to get a joke here and there, but there's no like, oh, I hate the person on the other side of the table. I'm going to fuck him up today like there is in other shows. And he walked in and, you know, Betsy is talking. We're, we're spending an hour talking about Lost the night before because we all used to watch the show Lost and then we'd come back to the script or whatever. And Rob Greenberg got up to leave to go back to the set. And he goes, do you all realize this is a fantasy land? Yeah. What you guys are doing right now, this doesn't happen elsewhere in this city. Mm -mm. I have not encountered it since. And that's not to say that there aren't wonderful people, because I have worked with wonderful people outside of my boys. But there was something, um, there was something special beyond language at that show. And there was there was a carefulness about our unit being a family and you, you were never alone. Um, even 
even a photo shoot once um, where they took me out of a picture and Betsy wasn't on set. And, you know, they have to publicize things a certain way. So when you're, you're, when you're the only of one cast, like when you're the, when you're the only black person and they take you out of the cast photo and you're a series regular, it's fucked up. Like, let me be clear. It's a fucked up thing to do. And I don't care what the marketing excuse is. It's whack. Betsy wasn't there, you know, and I called her and I called her and she was like, I'm pissed, you know, and she talked to whoever she has to talk to. Now she has bosses and she has protocol that she has to follow and all that kind of stuff. But she always went to bat for her show, for her actors, for her writers, um, against whatever pushback she may have come against, you know, she went to bat for us. So just knowing I could call her and have that conversation, you know what I mean? There's people I work with now that I can't talk to about that kind of shit. They're not going to hear it. They're not answering the phone. You know, if I call Betsy right now, after we get off of this recording, she's going to answer my phone. And we're what, 15, 16, 17 years later. Well, she's responsible for the family atmosphere. I mean, she has to be given full credit for that because Betsy Thomas, who's been on the show and is my uh, one of my closest friends on the planet and has been since 1987, she doesn't suffer fools. Nope. And she would not allow a situation, an atmosphere where one person could get out of whack. And she has an incredible ability to keep people in line, too, because no one wants to be the person who fucks up the chemistry. That's you know right. what I mean? That's right. And and she is she's responsible for picking the writers who wrote on that show, and she's respo- responsible for picking the cast. Uh, even though the casting director, I'm so Tracy Lillenfeld did an incredible job yeah. bringing yeah. all these people in together. Um, at the end of the day, it was Betsy Thomas mm-hmm. uh, who was responsible for what a working situation Calais and I had. Like a moth to a flame. Janet is Jackson's fifth studio album, and it was released on May 18, 1993. Prior to the album's release, Jackson was the center of a high-profile bidding war over her record contract. After meeting with Virgin Records owner Richard Branson, Janet Jackson left AM and signed to Branson's label. That contract was worth an estimated $40 million, bucks, making Jackson the world's then-highest-paid musical act. Jackson wrote all the lyrics for the album in addition to co-producing every song and co-writing the arrangements with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Janet incorporated hip-hop, opera, house, and jazz, and it eliminated the rigid industrial sound of her previous records. Lyrically, the theme of Janet is sexual intimacy. Janet, of course, debuted at number one and remains one of only seven albums in history to produce six top 10 hits on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart, including the number one singles, That's the Way Love Goes, and Again. As you said, there's only one Janet, and so great that she titled that album Janet. Mm-hmm. Drop that Jackson all together, baby. If I'm, if, if I'm correct, was the cover of this, where she, I can't remember where she's yes. a pop, and the hands are on the hands are on those Janet boobies, honey. It, it, oh my God. And I remember this song again 
because that was like one of my breakup songs. I don't know. I've been in a lot of relationships. I've been broken up with a lot. And, um, but Janet got me again, got me through one of my, one of my hard ones. It got me through one of my hard ones. Yeah. Uh, where was that particular relationship and what part of the world was that? I feel like that was New York, man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel like that was New York. And I think it was because what I think that was college. What year would, did Janet come out? 93. Okay. So, oh, oh, that was going. Okay. That was going to college. It was high school, college. Um, that was Chris. <laughs> <laughs> he was Italian. Um, he was a pitcher on the, on the, um, on our baseball team. And then when we were going to college, you know, we, we had to do the the breakup thing. We had named our kids already. Of course, we had already decided the wedding date and the whole thing. And then, (laughs) and then, um, I went off to New York to act. And when you are studying at a conservatory, you just, it's a whole nother world. And when you come from Narstown, East Narton, Pennsylvania, and like I said, that 15 mile radius thing, and then all of a sudden you're studying in New York to be an actor and you're in this company of 20 people from all over, from Miami, from Brooklyn, from, you know, I mean, I think like just everywhere, all of a sudden, like the world was literally at my hands and we couldn't make it work. We could not make it work. Janet made it work, but we yeah. make it work. And yeah, so that was one of my uh, that was one of my songs again. <laughs> Other famous Italians from Norristown include Dodger catcher Mike Piazza and actor Maria Bello. <laughs> we love Maria Bello. She fucking rocks. <laughs> um, how did Norristown? I didn't watch Steve Kornacki or John King. How did Norristown go uh, last week? Montgomery County voted the right way. (laughs) (laughs) They voted the right way. I was nervous. I actually couldn't watch too much because I'm in a rewrite, number one. But number two, like my anxiety level. Like when you get our age, we know that like I could go to the hospital if I don't calm the hell down. Like this is not going to be good. Um, But my mother, Mama Stu, 77 years old, was a freedom walker has, you know, been through so much. She was glued to that TV. She knew she was, she knew we are going to get this shit right this time. And she was watching and she said, Montgomery County voted blue. So we were very, very happy about that. I feel like mainly the 18 to 30 year old crowd um, was doing that. Um, But my mother also knew that Philly was going to come out and they were going to come out strong. Um, when Barack Obama was first running, my mom was working for the democratic party in Philadelphia. So she was one of the people that was knocking on doors and registering people to vote. And, you know, certain people that may have had misdemeanors that didn't know that they could still vote or whatever the situation might be helping them figure out what their status is and taking them. And so she very highly anticipated that Philadelphia was going to come out very, very strong this year. And that the, the the boots on the ground in the Democratic Party working in Philly were over, like working overtime to make sure that that city showed up and showed out. And they did. But yes, Marstown did the right thing. And they did. I mean, basically, Atlanta, Philly, Detroit right. saved us. 
Save black us. women, black women saved us. Black women, baby, honey, listen, it's, and it's, it's the, it's the truth and it's the reality of the situation. And I'm really glad that we are able to have that conversation without it, you know, without silencing that, you know, to, to understand that there is, um, there is a group of people that have always been pushing and pushing and pushing ahead. It, it's in our ancestry. We just need everybody to come along. You know what I mean? Because this does not need to just, we cannot do this by ourselves. Allyship is the best thing ever. But you know, there's so many, with all the negativity that we see, there are so many wonderful conversations that are happening within the community. And I, I just... I always like, you know, I remember when George Floyd, when that happened here in LA and I got a call from a casting director, white friend of mine. And she called and she goes, look, just so you know, I tell you can hang up with me if I'm about to say something disrespectful, but as a white privileged woman, I need to know what can I do? How can I exact change? And where am I a part of the problem? What am I blind to? And if you as a black woman are like, I don't have time for your bullshit today, I will totally understand, hang up the phone and I'll just call you tomorrow on a regular day to say hello, but I need to make this call. And I said to her, I, you got me a hundred percent. Let's have this conversation. And we had a real talk about what's lacking we had a real talk because I think when we say, well, as someone that's oppressed, it's not my job to educate the oppressor. I get that. Right. But if we do not have an open stream of communication, nothing is going to change because her making that phone call, she was nervous to do that. And this is somebody that I've known she cast me in my first pilot before my boys. So this is somebody I've known over 17 years. And she was nervous to make that call to me, her friend, you know, and to just know that that no longer has to permeate in the air between us. Um, there's a lot of good things that come out of all of the bullshit that has now been brought to the surface that we have to pay attention to. It's our job to to combat it by having the conversation. A lot has been brought out into the light as well. Some bad stuff. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of young white people did not vote for Biden-Harris. My dad lives in Center City. He lives at the end of Cherry Street. His apartment looks across the river at Penn Station. You know, my part of I have a huge Philly part of my life. Every summer in college, I would leave Chicago and I would go back to Philadelphia to work uh, my dad's law firm, which was right off Rittenhouse Square, in the middle of the damn city. And we've had some interesting conversations about this last election. And my dad's an old school Kennedy Democrat. He's not going to vote for Trump ever. Mm -hmm. uh, he hates him. But he was saying that, like, you know, some of the white people in his office, like those secretaries that live in Bucks County. Oh, yeah. They voted for Trump. A lot of it was because of their 401ks, as they would say to him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But a lot of it was just that fear of change that fear. And, and, and the anger, the anger that they that they feel that like strange, historic, like dawn of time shit, the fear of the other and, and fear of a changing world and fear of hip hop culture overtaking white culture with teenagers and just all that stuff. And they will always verbalize it with economics. But 
it's there. And my dad was like, yeah, it kind of sucks being in the office today because there's a lot of sad people here and I'm hearing cheering out in the streets. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's very, very real. And I, but I, you know, no change comes without this stuff being in front of our face. Like we got to look right at it. Yeah. You know what I mean? We can't turn a blind eye anymore. You know, my mom, when she was in college, um, my mom and my dad went to West Virginia state. And when there would be a March happening, you know, in civil rights or something, they would meet in the basement. They had to go like nighttime hours and they would have like these, these meetings where they would, act out what could happen on the march. So half of the room would be calling the other half of the room nigger, bitch, and all of the rest of the stuff. And my mom um, would have to stay steadfast. Keep keep your face forward. Don't react. Because they were playing the, the, you know, they were playing the role of the cops or the role of white people that were going to go to the march to antagonize so that you would get arrested, you get hit with a billy club, the whole thing. So they had to actually practice how to maintain um, their calmness so that they could get the mission done of getting the statement out there that they needed to get out there. We live in a world where we have these Twitter fingers, right? So we're, we're reactionary. We, we don't necessarily have to mobilize in the same way and come up with a plan. Something happens and we go to the street the next day, you know? And so my mom seeing all of this stuff, like when BLM was happening, um, this summer was, let me tell you something. When it was us, it was a few hundred that would turn into a few thousand if we were lucky. But as a 77 year old woman, I don't have that energy. I can't walk in that street the same way. And to see not just a city, two cities, but all of these cities and the whole world react and say no more is a huge shift forward. So though 70 million people still voted for this man mm-hmm. and, and voted against change, now we freaking know for real what the hell we live in and what we have continued to make okay. The first time I was called a nigger was by my neighbor across the street, Dan's parents, like I said, in my house, grabbing him out of my house. Get out of this nigger's house. They still freaking live there. We don't, but they do. And so the reality is, it's here. But then you think about something like my 11-year-old niece, or I'm sure you know kids, that the only president she saw before Trump was Barack Obama, and then Trump, and now she gets to see Kamala Harris in her little young life. You know what I mean? It took my mom 70 years before she saw that. With my niece, Kira, she's she's not even a teenager, and she's already seen what's possible. So we just got to keep up the good fight, and yeah. we will. And and the the next fight is with Stacey Abrams and uh, her Stacey Abrams and her top lieutenants. Uh, don't give any money to anybody else. Give it to the Senate candidates themselves or whatever group Stacey tells you to because we got to kick ass in Georgia. Yeah, baby. Um, all right, let's wrap things up. The Velvet Rope is Janet Jackson's sixth studio album. The album was released on October 7th, 1997 through Virgin Records. Prior to its release, Jackson renegotiated her contract for Virgin for 80 million bucks, 
which was the largest recording contract in history at that time. The record was co-written and co-produced by Jackson, her then-husband, Renee Elizondo Jr., and Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. The album's composition fuses various genres, including pop, R&B, trip-hop, folk, jazz, rock, and electronic music. Considered to be one of Jackson's most mature recordings, The Velvet Rope is regarded as a template for pop artists transitioning to a darker or more rebellious sound and as a precursor to the development of alternative R&B. The Velvet Rope became Jackson's fourth consecutive album to top the Billboard charts' notable singles. Together Again became an international number one hit, and I Get Lonely became Janet Jackson's 18th consecutive top 10 single in the U.S. You know, the thing about this like sort of changing world and changing society, if I might... Brendan explained something, Kalei, if you will give me the platform for two seconds. Yes. I have long thought, like these unbelievable accomplishments in music and sports specifically, whether it's Kobe Bryant or Janet Jackson or Beyonce, Dr. Dre, LeBron, you name it, in the modern day, this still bumps a lot of people. There are a lot of white men who can't go to bed at night knowing that they'll never make as much money as these people in their entire life. It's just amazing to me. I've just always thought this so much about like the racism that exists in Philly. Those men can cheer on the Eagles or the Sixers, but during the day, they're going to drag their kid out of the Stewart home and call her a nigger. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's bonkers, but I have long thought, like when I read those figures about like Janet gets the biggest recording contract, then she doubles that recording contract, like that kind of success fucking bumps a lot of people in this country. Mm-hmm. And I say to those people, let it go, let it go, let it go, let it go, let it go. Mm-hmm. Like celebrate it, celebrate the fact that we have this angel who was put on this planet to bring joy to our lives instead of like just being angry and bitter about it. But, you know, when that stuff courses through your veins, when that kind of hatred and racism courses through your veins, there is no reason in your brain. Yeah, it's it's all the way gone. You don't even know what you're mad at anymore. Like, to be honest. It's just like you latch onto an idea because somebody else told you the thing because, you know, there's that age old statement, like you're not born with hate. You really are not. You're, you just, you just aren't, you know? And, and so it, there, it is a learned behavior. It is, it is, it is something that is outside of you that you take on as is, as if it is the truth. So in essence, you are lying to yourself repeatedly over and over again. And you're making yourself physically sick to harbor that type of hate. And it doesn't even have logic to it anymore. It, it's, it just doesn't. Um, we have to, we have to be really mindful that every generation has a new opportunity to change the conversation of the generation before them and to make these things go away. And what we have to really see now in 2020 is we have not done that generation by generation. That's the truth. Otherwise, we wouldn't be in this position because for what it's worth, I never thought Trump was going to win. I voted in California. There was no way he was going to win over Hillary Clinton. It just wasn't going to happen. Who's putting this dude in the White House? Oh, white racist people are. Got it. So I, even being a black woman that was called nigger by my white neighbor, didn't know 
in reality, the amount of racism that exists in the United States, my mom did. She got it. She's been known it, but I didn't. And, you know, as Mama Stu would say, we just have to keep passing the baton. It, we, we, can, we can focus on how much is still there, which definitely needs work. Or we can also go, but we have come far, even from, first of all, he lost. Okay. <laughs> There's something to be said that 5 million more people are saying no to hate. Like we we're there, right? Black lives matter happened and the world responded internationally responded and that happened. So as much that we still have to do, we also have to say, you guys, we're going in the right direction. Now we have to mobilize in a way where the generations that are coming after us, that we give them the right baton. And that's up to us. And that's why when I see parents with their kids holding up a BLM sign or being part of this change, they they see that. I remember it. I'll keep it brief. But I remember one of my white friends, I wrote a post on Facebook to Narstown that said, you know, with this Black Lives Matter with George Floyd, I said to my neighborhood, like, don't tell me that you love me if you are not in those streets or part of the change. Because if you think of this as this is my black friend's protest and my black friend's problem, this doesn't affect me. You are part of the problem and you don't really love me. You only love me when it's convenient and it doesn't disrupt you and it doesn't make you accountable for the racism that you see because you all heard his father call me a nigger. So I had a friend after she read it say, but Kel, love does matter. And I do love you. And I said, not today. It doesn't. Cause guess what? Love isn't going to make my kid more safe on the street than your kid. So if you love me, do something about it. And then her kids went out in the street and they marched, they made phone calls and she sent pictures and she goes, I didn't realize that when I'm watching something on TV, that it's not my black friend's problem. It's my problem if our kids are not the same and they're not safe together. And I said, exactly. So before you tell me you love me, show me. That's all I got to say. What else is there to say? We've had Calais Stewart for an hour and four minutes. <laughs> Holy Christ. I'm not going to say anything. I mean, that's, that's, that's it. Oh, my God. I love you. Wow, lady. <laughs> I mean, I'm, 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 first of all, I'm just eternally grateful to hear those thoughts. Uh, and I'm just so grateful to you for spending the time with me today on this dumb little podcast where we could awesome. celebrate the uh, ding dong, the witch is dead with a little, with a little light and happiness and Janet Jackson. Is there anything that you want to uh, promote or, or say to the kids out there before we, uh, we say goodbye? Well, yeah, like I said, I'm writing a movie. It's called 29 Eggs. We sold it to a network about being proactive women with your fertility health. And um, I learned along the way how much we are not taught about our own reproductive system and how it works. We're born with as many eggs as we're ever going to have. And so you have to be pro pro productive and proactive about it and make plans earlier rather than later. So hopefully we'll be shooting that in the spring. And... Um, yeah, and you'll see me make fun of it and have okay. a good 
if if you need a middle aged white guy to do craft service on your uh, on your various projects, give me a call. I'll carry I'll carry cables for you. Um, holy Christ! Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Calais Stewart from Norristown, Pennsylvania. I love you, Brando. You're the best. And to the rest of you out there, thank you so much for liking, subscribing, listening, leaving comments on Apple or wherever you listen to the Brando cast. we got so many great episodes coming down the pike, but this is uh, this was a fucking delight. Uh, so until the next time, cats and kittens. Ooh.